Before we start this podcast, we would like to take the opportunity to mention that we now have a Patreon page where you can help to support, evolve and continue these compassionate conversations. Please visit patreon.com slash voce dialogues for more information. Welcome everyone to the Voce Dialogues, Voices of Compassionate Evolution. I'm Chloe Goodchild, founder of The Naked Voice, and this is our new online community where we are exploring, deepening, and evolving our awareness of the transforming power of compassion. Enjoy these new dialogues with a wide range of artists, musicians, writers, and philosophers, social entrepreneurs, and sacred activists. They are all visionaries, transforming lives through the art of conscious creative expression with practices inspired by their own unique life experience. The Voce Dialogues are dedicated to the compassionate evolution of life on Earth. Well, hello, everyone. I am so, so honored to be in conversation today with Deb Shapiro. Deb, you are one of my oldest friends, and we have traveled together over many years. So it's incredible to be in this conversation with you, exploring the whole theme of what compassion means. Big, big welcome to you. Thank you. Thank you, dear one. So Deb is the author of Your Body Speaks Your Mind and with her amazing husband, Ed, the author of 20 books on mindfulness and meditation, including their latest book, The Unexpected Power of Mindfulness and Meditation. Ed and Deb leave mindfulness and meditation retreats and personal development workshops worldwide. They've been teaching together for 30 years. Deb is from the English countryside. She is the granddaughter, believe it or not, of Sir Winston Churchill's editor. She trained with Tai Situ Rinpoche, later working for him in Hawaii. So that's just a tiny little window into your extraordinary life. And as you're aware, the focus of this conversation is on the theme of compassion. So I'd just love to know how you describe compassion, what it is and how it's shown up in your life. I've been thinking about this all night, as you asked me yesterday. Mm. And the only real answer I've had for this in myself is it's kindness. It comes as kindness. It, it shares itself as kindness because you can only really be kind when you put yourself aside, mm. when your own needs don't get in the way, when your own meanness doesn't arise, but you're just there for that other person or what the situation might need. Mm. And that is kindness. It is compassion too, which is maybe a different form of kindness, a fuller form. But I don't think compassion is separate from us. It, it's not something we learn mm. or or have to train in. It's an arising within us of just who we are, mm. of, of an expression of the open heart. Beautiful. Absolutely. And how did this understanding happen upon you? Oh, meditation, without a doubt. I mean, I've been doing, I got introduced to meditation when I was 15. Mm -hmm. And it just felt absolutely like a coming home. I don't think I knew what 
it was about. I didn't understand the instructions Mm -hmm. or what people were saying, but I just knew I'd come home. Mm. And especially as it was on a, a meditation retreat and at night in the evenings, meditating by candlelight, I would just, even at 15, I was gone. I was in a different consciousness for sure. And it became an integral part of my being. It was just, it just awoke something very deep in me that just resonated in that emptiness. Awesome. Awesome. I guess to some degree, I mean, I'm aware as some of us will be listening that you did have a rather remarkable and still have a very remarkable mother who (laughs) in no uncertain terms must have been really quite an influence on your... She, she was not actually so remarkable in her early life. I was in boarding school for eight years. I hardly lived with her. The holidays were always in different places mm-hmm. and with different people. And when I was about 21, I decided I needed to make friends with her. Mm. I needed to get to know her. She just married for the third time. Mm-hmm. And I'd left home at 15, so we weren't that attached at all. Mm-hmm. But we became friends and got to know each other in a different way. So that even though we lived very separate lives, she was just there as a good influence, yes. She mm-hmm. was a Buddhist from when I was about 10 years old. So she was very involved with the Buddhist society here in London. Mm -hmm. Uh, I knew a lot of her friends and it's through her that I discovered meditation really Mm -hmm. I met Alan Watts I knew Douglas Harding many of the old awakened beings as it were in the 60s and 70s who are no longer with us Mm -hmm. but she was a part of all that Mm -hmm. and now she's 96 and goodness me living in a nursing home and I said to her what is it you, you do? What, what fills your day? And she said, I just sit and watch. <laughs> and then she wrote a piece about the beauty. It's not so much something's itness, it's its beingness. Like the table has a being. <laughs> it is just a table, but <laughs> it also is an energy within itself. And that's where she's at right now. She's totally dissolving into that it's wonderful not many mothers at her age will be able to say that to you that's so great I've just been with my mom today just walking with her this afternoon she's in what I call dementia as in as opposed to dementia she's in this kind of multi-dimensional state we were walking along in this beautiful breeze and the sunshine under these massive copper beech trees near her care home we were just walking along and a lot of the time she, she could be quite confused and then suddenly she just suddenly stopped and she said, can we just take note of this moment? Oh, and I was so, so suddenly just literally the most unexpected moment came in and she just said, can we just look at this tree? You know, and she just started scanning this extraordinary, very tall, very balanced tree in front of us and started to wax lyrical on the power of this tree. 
<laughs> but that kind of rings bells, I can hear, with, with you, with your mum. She has a rose garden underneath her window, and, and so the smell, when the windows are open, she just drinks it. Oh, yeah. So that, that's her tree, is the rose bush. Yeah. Why is this understanding not kind of brought into our lives, into our school lives, whether it's boarding schools or wherever we are? Were there teachers, were there other beings in your life that somehow injected this kind of self-inquiring wonder, question of who I am? Why am I here? How am I here? I'm sure there were. From when I was, as I said, from 15, I was meditating and part of a meditation group with a teacher who I am sure influenced me. Was that within your school? No, I'd left school by then. Right, right. school, there was no one. No one. I wasn't a school person. I just wanted to be gone. You were wise enough to leave. I I think in retrospect, it might have been good to stay. Mm. But... My mother had left home and left school at 15. Mm. So when I decided to, she didn't think anything of it. Mm. She didn't, nobody tried to, to persuade me to stay. Awesome. To have the uh, opportunity to meet Alan Watts and Douglas Harding. He wrote on having no head, didn't he? He did. And it was, it was marvelous. We quoted from him in our latest book, The Unexpected Power of Mindfulness and Meditation, because mm. he talks about how one day he suddenly realized he could only see his head in a mirror. But when he looked at himself, he could see his hands, he could see his legs, but there was no head. He couldn't see his own head. And, and it took him into a, a, a place of really ex- expanded consciousness, basically. He just felt like it moved into a place where his head was, was empty of him and yet completely full of the trees and the birds and the sky. It was full of everything and yet empty of him. Oh, lovely. And Alan Watts, he was writing the foreword to my mother's book when he died. He was another one I I loved. I mean, he was a rogue, to put it mildly. But I remember when I was probably about 17 and I was at a talk he was giving with a friend. And Alan was standing on stage. He was wearing this three-piece suit. And he looked down and he saw all these buttons on the wrist you know, as, as suits tend to have a little row of buttons on the wrist that really do no purpose whatsoever. <laughs> and he looked at it and he was staggered and he was like, why are they there? <laughs> he proceeded to pull all these buttons off. <laughs> and it just, I mean, I was completely in fits of giggles by then. Uh, my friend and I could hardly contain ourselves. It was just such a wonderful present moment. I love it. Absolutely love it. Do share with us how life unfolded. You met others. You got married. You moved to the... Yes. I mean, how, did, how can you dis, dis, dissect a 65-year-old life? Um, it, it evolved. It evolved. I evolved into doing a lot of body work, massage, training in different forms of body healing, mm-hmm. and writing uh, the Body Mind Workbook. Then... I had a trip, I went traveling around the world and met someone who was, I I sort of fell in love with. I was already married and divorced by then, but then I met him and he was going to Hawaii. So I went with him and that opened a huge door for me in terms of a world that was so completely different to England. I was, I was able to be whoever I wanted to be there. There was no restrictions. Oh, what a relief. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I had an extraordinary meeting with Tai Sita Rinpoche there because when I got to Honolulu, I said, okay, what am I going to do here? I've worked with Buddhist centers before and administration. So let's go check out the local Buddhist center, which I did. And when they heard who I was and what I'd done in London, they said, well, look, we've got this Buddhist teacher coming and we need to set up the whole program for him and, and, and his teaching schedule. And I said, okay, let's do it. I had no idea who he was. I just like people in robes. Let's put it that way. <laughs> um, and he was arriving on, I think it was Christmas Eve. And it was one of these houses in, a, in Honolulu where you come in on the front and then you go down the steps into the kitchen. It was like into a living room and kitchen. They were on the, the, the lower floor. Mm-hmm. And everybody was gathered in the, the bottom floor waiting for him. And I just thought, well, I don't know who this guy is. So I just stood by the, the door into the office, which was at the back. And he came down the steps and he stopped a few steps down from the bottom. And he looked around and he saw me. Now, he had never seen me before. No photograph, nothing. Mm-hmm. And I'd never seen him before. But he came through the whole crowd to me. And he just said, oh, you must be Debbie. Hmm. And at that point, I just totally collapsed. Whoa. How did he know who I was? I can't even remember how the rest of the evening went. I was in such a daze. And, and from then on, it was just getting to know him and becoming a part of his world hmm. and teaching from him. And we've maintained a extraordinary contact, even though I haven't seen him in probably 20 years now. Wow. Um, These moments where I know uh, Coleman Barks, uh, Rumi poet, calls them, he talks about the gaze, the transmission of the gaze. This morning, uh, I was just talking with another being about the, the power of wisdom, eldership and lineage, sacred lineage, and how that can just impact our lives like left field out of nowhere. You know, there's nothing that the conceptual mind can make sense of mm. so it sounds as if you found yourself in the presence of that transmission at the time it didn't feel like transmission it just felt like shock okay. um, but a little while later probably six months later or whatever i was flying from philadelphia to dallas mm-hmm. where i was going to be teaching for a couple of days before going back to Honolulu. It was a night flight. It was dark outside. Most of us were sleeping. There was, we had whole rows to ourselves because the plane was half empty. Mm-hmm. And just as we got near Dallas, we hit the tail end of a tornado. Mm-hmm. And the plane itself just, it didn't erupt, but it became like a feather in the sky. It was just out of control. Lockers, you know, the, the baggage was opening up above us and flying all over the place and everybody was hunkered down trying to protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And I just felt, wow, if this is it, okay. Mm-hmm. And just surround yourself in love and let it be. And mm-hmm. somehow we managed to steer away and, and landed a few hundred miles further east or whatever. And somebody gave me a bed for the night and the people I was going to stay with in in Dallas came and got me the next morning. Mm -hmm. And then I was put on a plane back to Hawaii Mm -hmm. and picked up in Honolulu and taken to my room 
my apartment. I put my bag down. I'd never done this before. I passed out for 12 hours. I mm. literally just passed out. I was in a completely altered state by then. Mm. And when I woke up, Ty Sita was sitting in the corner of my room. Oh, my God. Now, obviously, he was my projection, my imagination, whatever. But mm. he stayed there for a week mm. and absolutely brought me back into my body. Mm. And completely enabled me to just feel my presence and feel the body and know that I could leave at any other time if I wanted. But right now I was here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And a while later, as a result of that visit from him, I wrote him a letter. He was actually in India at the time saying, you know, thank you. Mm-hmm. And therefore, obviously, I really felt him to be my teacher. And then when he came to Honolulu, I guess another few months later, and I said to him, did you get my letter? And he said, no, no, what letter? <laughs> I was like, oh, gosh, I've got to start all over again. <laughs> and it was just a, a moment where your sort of extended consciousness comes straight back into the ego. Mm-hmm. And, and has to deal with that. But we got through it, and, and we've been very close ever since. Incredible. Incredible. I mean, I suppose transmission is shock, isn't it? But there's no knowing what it is or who it is or why it no, is. There is no knowing. It's not labeled transmission. Yeah. You're not told, oh, here it comes. Yeah, right. <laughs> you don't even know it is transmission when it happens. You have no idea. What it does is it brings you deeply into the present moment. Mm. Nothing else exists. Mm. That's when it happens, I think. And that visitation of presence that you saw him, he was in the room. I saw him there. It was that vivid in your awareness. Mm -hmm. And so whatever that was really must have impacted activated something a deeper knowing within you well one of the difficulties I've, I've always had to deal with since I was 15 began meditating and then got more and more involved is that it changes you in a way where the average person hasn't changed mm. and so in a way there are very few people you can talk to mm. Mm. and I saw myself sort of come down from there as it were to join the world and mm. be a part of it and be married and have relationships and and do things that other people do but it never felt a hundred percent real oh i so understand and mm. even when i was with tai Situ, i knew he knew me i knew he knew me completely but mm. i didn't know anyone else did mm. and so when people when when somebody would say to me oh all these people really like you and i think they don't know me how mm. can they like me mm. they don't Mm. And I would have no way of being able to say that, mm. no way of being able to share that. It was just mm. this inner sense that who I was was not what they were seeing, mm. was not what they were talking to, not this person they thought they liked. It was somebody completely different, but I had no way of sharing it, mm-hmm. at least when I was younger. Mm. And I guess what I've seen as I got an order is that those people who I really do deeply connect with, like you, are mm. people who know what emptiness is, mm. who, can ex- who experience it, who feel it within themselves. Whether it, they live in it or not is irrelevant. It's an experience of emptiness that's in them. Mm. And that's what I can resonate deeply mm. with. Mm. 
it's such a blessing just to hear you speak about this and like this. I mean, it's very challenging, isn't it, in the Western world to in some way try and translate this experience because it gets confused with things like spiritual inflation and one can get into trouble mm-hmm. you know, just for being weird. In, in kind of Yeah, yeah, sure. And I'm sure I've, I've, people have felt that about me many a time. Yeah, well, I totally understand. Um, and I'm sure they've, they've many a time they thought I was arrogant or, you know, just uninterested in them. I, 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 I don't want to necessarily invite everyone to be my friend, and so I don't encourage it. Mm. Or there are people who get hurt by that. There's nothing I can do. Mm. No, there is nothing to be done, actually. What is interesting is that compassion entered in the form of the revelation and the commitment, if you like, or the spontaneous choice to bring the fruits of your experience to others in the form of books, in the form Gosh, of- I don't know if there was ever a moment of choice in that. Mm. It was just a, an expression of who you are or who I was. Mm-hmm. It's like, okay, this is what I believe. Let's go for it. Yes, I understand. Yes, it's like I look back now and I go, where did all that music come from? And who on earth was making that music? And why did she do that? And why did she spend so many years running all these workshops? And There's no answer. There's no answer. It, it just happened. You know, at one level, didn't it? It just happened. But I think there is something around a compulsion to serve, to share, to... compulsion to serve is a good one. That is maybe how compassion expresses itself. Because as I said earlier, who you are and what your needs may be is really irrelevant. And that compulsion to serve is much greater. Right. And I, I think there's something very powerful in writing a book and leaving that on bookshelves around the place because that does give people the freedom to choose or not to choose. Yes, if people still do read books, I'm never quite sure. Yeah, I've actually returned to doing that because I love, I love the hard copy. I love CDs. I love anything that I can sensorily, you know, get my hands on because uh, there is a downside, of course, to the whole internet, even though I'm very grateful for it right now here talking to you. Yes, everything has its benefits and it's, it's not so good. Mm. Uh, maybe CDs and books will come back in fashion at some point. <laughs> so, service. I believe you found a companion to share you with that. Oh. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Ed and I met about 33 years ago, and it was very interesting because it wasn't like, oh my God, it's him. I'm, I'm falling deeply in love. It was much more of recognition. It was much more, oh, it's him. Okay, mm-hmm. let's get on with it. <laughs> It was it was a sense of so it's you, okay, and total just that's what was going to happen. Mm. And thirty three years later, we're still there. Mm. We were married within about five or six months. Amazing. It wasn't that sort of romantic image of two people who just can't possibly be apart. It mm. was much more about just meeting this person who you were meant to be with. Mm. And what I've learned from you both is that compulsion to serve, that, that service is your middle name somehow, the two of hopefully, you. Hopefully, I mean, that's what, I, hopefully we've been of help to people. Mm. That's all you can really do is just do your best and leave the rest. 
know, that's what a very wise teacher said to us once. I must admit, it wasn't me. That was someone else. <laughs> <laughs> so 33 years later, it's an incredibly rich output of books and also connections and working on radio together and, you know, using different forms of communication. Obviously, you... oh, I think the best one was we had our own TV series in England, Chill Out. And we would start and end each show with a, the, the beginning would be like a, a, a verbal meditation and, and, and saying, and at the end I would sit in meditation and lead people. And so we'd have people coming up to us in the street, oh, I meditate with you every night. <laughs> this was two minutes long. <laughs> well, that's a meditation for, fine, great. If that really helps, that's all that matters. Yeah. But all I could do was two minutes. <laughs> I would say the most central thing I've learned from knowing you two is the way in which you interface humor with like the cosmic joke of life, you know. Oh, taking it seriously is the worst thing we could possibly do. <laughs> I mean, nothing's real, nothing lasts, nothing's mm. permanent, mm. nothing's that serious. Mm. Even life and death isn't actually that serious. Mm. Um, because it will all happen all over again anyway. Mm. Really, the only choice we have is to laugh about it and to be able to see the humor of it all and just be grateful for for that humor. Mm. You know, when we take ourselves too seriously, it's a real waste of time. Mm. It's that mm. simple. It, it's the only way you can really exist in this awfulness, the awfulness of this world right now. Mm. I mean, let's face it, English politics, American politics, good grief. Mm. What have we come to? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was such a, a ray of light for a moment when Obama was in. There was just this little tiny flicker. Mm. But even he was thwarted completely mm. from being able to really be who he was. Mm. Mm. And, and now it seems to have gone into the dark ages very quickly. Mm. Thank God all things do pass. Mm. But we really can't take it all too seriously because it's just a yes, this is what's happening. So mm. no point in crying about it. Mm. Mm. So where are you now? Where would you say the fruits of your life have brought you to now? What 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 really gives you most joy now? Where am I at right now? I don't know if I, I am anywhere. I th- I think I'm on having no head. I think that's probably exactly where I'm at. Uh, there's very little sense of me present in my life. Mm. I have to exert myself to be present, to be involved, to be engaged Mm. with people or conversations Mm. because my natural inclination is just to be quiet. Mm. Mm. And I know that my husband needs me. I know that I have to do certain things. I have to engage in certain conversations or whatever. But it's it, it it's purposeful. Mm. It's mm. it's not automatic anymore. Mm. I'm just just referring myself back to uh, your body speaks your mind. I don't know whether you want to share anything about how your body speaks your mind now. How well, you? I, I, I mean, what my body's doing now is it has a neurological difficulty whereby I, I I'm live in a wheelchair, and so going out and traveling or whatever is is pretty hard work uh so i don't do it and as a result of being home staying in the wheelchair everything drops away and Mm -hmm. you're left with what is real Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what is real what is emptiness Mm -hmm. um what is what is not necessary 
mm-hmm. and you become extraordinarily aware of the superfluous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It sounds in a way as if, you know, as, as challenging as, as we might imagine that to be, as if this experience has, has really contributed significantly to your own liberation. As if it's been yes, a- it has, yes. Because, I mean, I've been in the wheelchair four years now, and certainly the first year there was a tremendous amount of resistance mm. and desperation to get out of it and mm. trying to explore different ways to do that. And then there was a, a breathing moment of just saying, no, just make friends with this. Mm. Let's just really make friends with this. And now I, I don't even know there's anything wrong with me. It's just, this is who I am. This is, I live in the chair. Mm. Um, but it's taken a while to get there. It's taken a while to make friends with it all. Mm. And in the process, it is, everything else has dropped away for sure. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It's a kind of like a fierce gift or something. Very fierce gift, yes. Mm. Demanding gift and one that really says, if you're serious about what you're saying, do it. Mm. And even though I find it harder to, for instance, sit in meditation for half an hour because it's sometimes hard to stay still, the emptiness is right there all the time. Mm. That's what I really get from you. I mean, I just just seeing you on screen and being with you in this way is just really remembering the essence of why we're here. It's, it's interesting because, I mean, within the process of, of the last four years, I've also, well, more than four years now, I've had two neurological issues. And one is called the suicide pain. It's a level of pain that comes and goes in your face that is phenomenal Mm. and I've had brain surgery for it I've had all sorts of other stuff for it and luckily it's been gone for the last few years now but that taught me a certain detachment as well it's something about it's easy to be detached from your body from the neck down Mm. but when it's affecting your face and head then it's much harder to be detached Mm. And to think of it as just the body. Mm. Because mm. we tend to think of our heads and faces as well as mm. us, mm. as me. Mm-hmm. And so that pain enabled me to step away from it. Mm. Enabled me to just to, to step outside of myself much more easily. Awesome. It's like the, the story of Job. Only the the strongest souls are given these kind of, they're like initiatory rites of passage or something, you know, because it's just unimaginable. I mean, pain, if I think of the the amount of pain that generally one just makes such a deal about in everyday life, just being able to walk about, it's unreal. Uh, And I'm with you and I just feel more joy and sweetness and blessings. Is there a song or a mantra that accompanies you at this time? Omani Padmehum is with me all the time. Mm. I had an extraordinary experience with that again when I was about 17 and I was on meditation retreat. And I had gone for a walk and found a tree that had split in two. Mm. So I had one trunk and two trees coming from it, which to me symbolized, immediately symbolized wisdom and compassion. 
the mm. two arms of Buddhism, as it were. Mm. And I sat at the bottom of that tree and just started chanting Om Mani Padme Hum. About 20 minutes later, I felt as if my face was completely changing shape. And mm. it was becoming the face, or it became the face of an old Tibetan man. And I continued chanting, and then it just slowly faded away, and I came back to me. But therefore, that mantra has stayed with me as obviously being a connecting, a place where I connect mm. Mm. inside. And, and whatever it is I connect with, it's right there. Oh. Well, my darling Deb, we have opened a lot of windows and a lot of doors in this conversation. <laughs> and I'm just wondering if you might consider just completing this stage of our conversation with the Om Mani Padme Hum. Thank you so much, Deb. My joy. Thank you. Oh, uh-huh.